Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Tim MacDonald, who is currently the CEO of YMCA WA and previously led Catholic Education WA, the Mind Roo Foundation, and was the education lead for Knowledge Society. Recently, he wrote a paper for the Centre for Independent Studies titled Teaching Behaviour, How Classroom Conduct Can Unlock Better Learning. Throughout this conversation, we touch on a lot of the key points from the report and talk about what schools can do to build a behaviour curriculum. I also corner him in to answering some of the tough questions on things such as phones in schools, exclusions and behaviour expectations. So here is my conversation with Dr. Tim McDonald. Really excited to be chatting to Dr. Tim McDonald today. Tim, before we delve into your recent CIS paper on teaching behaviour, are you able to tell us a bit about your journey into the position that you're in today? Yeah, thanks, Brendan. Thanks for um, having me on today. So I started as a teacher, uh, left school, wanted to become a social worker uh, and got some really good advice from a trusted um, person who said, do teaching and give you amazing skills and you'll be able to have those skills um, to work with young people um, who might be vulnerable or those within the school. So I did. I did a secondary teaching, did geography and politics and then did English as a minor, taught in, taught in schools in Western Australia, I've taught overseas in a pupil referral unit. Then I did my doctorate on those young people. So pupil referral unit is a behaviour unit for those young people for whom mainstream hasn't been successful. So this was 14 to 16-year-olds, had the opportunity to work with them, uh, develop some programs, how do we re-engage them, uh, did my doctorate on them, came back, worked at the university for, as an academic for nine and a half years on behaviour and in particular challenging behaviours, and then went into education administration and executive director, Catholic Education in Western Australia, 163 schools, 70 or thousand students, 15,000 staff, and then have stayed within the education sphere, working with schools, in particular classroom teachers, and then have moved into the YMCAWA because we're moving into education for disadvantaged youth. So we run a special assistance school for years 10 to 12, and we have 14 early learning centres. So we're trying to top and tail, get really good engagement, get some good literacy, get some good self-regulation in our early learning centres so that we don't have to have special assistance schools down the track. That's the aim. Awesome. I love your your summary there, but I just want to dig into a couple of things there because it sounds like you've, you've kind of naturally progressed through your career and, and had a real focus on behavior and even, you know, your initial interest of, of wanting to work in social um, work. How, how did that sort of come about? Was it, did you just have a natural inclination to, to want to help people out or, you know, was it through some sort of personal experience? I think both. I think Mum was a big influence. So mum was a nurse, first generation of her family to, to go into, into a degree or go into nursing. 
I think she was a bit of a trailblazer. She was very much for the underdog to the point of being blinded by it. Um, and I think she always had a great sense of justice. And then I had an amazing experience as a, as a young 19-year-old. I had the opportunity to work with um, an amazing Aboriginal woman called Mum Shell uh, and worked with her in Redfern. And so I spent a, num a number of weeks with her. Uh, we travelled through to all the prisons in New South Wales, bar Grafton, um, and just visiting Aboriginal prisoners. And so for me, that was a, an amazing learning experience coming from a, you know, a white middle-class background in Perth. Yes, we had Aboriginal people at school, kids boarded or in a hostel, but this was just a very different understanding of the complexities and the issues facing um, Aboriginal people, and particularly those incarcerated and the journeys that led them into incarceration. So that was a really powerful learning point for me. You know, and we ended up bringing Mum Shell over. I ended up visiting Fremantle Jail over here and visiting prisoners that I'd met in, a person in Parramatta. So I kept up the prison work and then worked with victims of crime. That was just a very convoluted story, but that's how we ended up. At the same time, uh, when I came back, I was working in a drop-in centre, an Aboriginal drop-in centre in Perth for young people. Even when I was teaching, I would do one night a week as a arrest express officer when young Aboriginal uh, boys and girls got arrested, they would call us. I'd go in and act as an independent adult witness at the police station, make yeah. sure, you know, they're okay, their rights were done, don't sign anything, you're okay, healthy, drive them to court, take them home. So I've always had that that experience. And and in teaching, when I worked at a, a particular school, I did a drug counselling course because drugs are so prevalent in the in the actual school. So that was also just building up skills and expertise to how to connect. I actually had a very funny experience when I, when I was living in Sydney. I did knock on the door to a drug rehab place and said, look, you know, I'm going to go into teaching. I think I really want to learn more about drugs and addiction. <clears throat> Can I yeah. come in? And they said, yeah, sure. So I lived, in, I lived in, in drug rehab for a week just to experience this particular approach. To it. So I think those experiences really enabled me to have empathy and connect with young people who are vulnerable, who find the constraints of school challenging or difficult in, the, in that area, but also at the same time really realistic that it's possible to behave, it's possible to learn, irrespective of postcode and background. Yeah, I actually grew up in Redfern, so a lot of what you're talking about there you know, really resonates with, with kind of my understanding and my experiences as I grew up as well. And so just moving on to like, you know, your current work and and where you've been really focused on looking at behaviour, you know, in particular around Australia over the last, uh, you know, 10, 10, 20 years really, hasn't it? What what would you say the nature of disruption is in Australian schools at the moment is? I think the nature of disruption in Australian schools is low level, high frequency, persistent, inattentiveness and off-task behaviour. Mm. And it's... Um, distracting of the teachers who are trying to teach. Students are telling us that they're distracted by it um, and it's not enabling them, them to learn. And we've known, we've known this for a long time, of course. Um, you know, we did our own research when I was at ECU around the pipeline study where we tried to map engagement and students' academic achievement with their behaviour and yeah. work with teachers. And it was really clear there that there are, you know, 40% of young people come in and out of this disengaged group throughout the year, but there's a constant 20% of young people over four years stayed within this group that were compliant, 
They weren't kicking over the tracer. They weren't challenging the, the teacher's authority, but they just weren't engaged in learning. And they were a year and a half behind their peers on standardised testing. That's the same distance behind than the group that were identified as quite aggressive in their behaviour and challenging the teacher's authority. So we've got a group of young people that are just inattentive. Mm. Galton calls them the easy riders. They ghost through school. You don't push me too much. I'll only write a paragraph when you ask for, a, ask for an essay. Um, I won't challenge your authority and be naughty in the class. You just don't ask too much of us. It's all of this reverse um, behaviour modification. The kids, are, the kids are shaping the teacher um, to do it. But the number one, one behaviour identified over four years of that group was inattentiveness. That they just don't come prepared, laptops not working, don't have stuff to work with, don't bring textbooks, um, turn around, talk, move out of the seat, pass notes, all these, all these low-level distracting behaviours. And I think we're seeing that right across Australia at the moment. So I was in a school in Queensland on Thursday, Friday, had the opportunity to talk to secondary school students, and I talked to them about the work that we're doing with their teachers, but also how you're experiencing the classroom. And they were really clear that the teaching of these routines that we're helping the staff with, the teaching of these skills that we're teaching the staff is helping them learn. One, one young man, a boy that was in this group, just said, it's much easier to learn now mm. because the classrooms are a bit calmer. And I don't think it takes much, but people are experiencing this incredible disruption mm. day in, day out, and no wonder young people are falling behind in academic achievement if they're not learning. Yeah, and, you know... Talking about that, that easy riders group, you know, who are, who are ghosting through. I think it's it's almost, I'd say, it's definitely worse than the other group who are outwardly misbehaving, because as teachers, you almost feel bad for asking for help for that that twenty percent, you know, where they're not necessarily you know doing anything wrong but they're just not learning as effectively or efficiently as they could be. And so, yeah, as a teacher, whether you're a beginning teacher or experienced teacher, you, you just, you feel like there's already, there's so many other things that you could be working on. That seems like something that you, that you shouldn't, you know, really be putting a lot of time and effort into, you know, like how have you, you seen like this sort of message being communicated across effectively so that teachers are able to understand like, like this is actually an important group to, to, to ensure that we're really pushing. Oh, I think we need a whole cultural revolution, not only at universities, but in schools. It's okay to struggle with behaviour. Yeah. It's okay. Reach out. Let's have a conversation. What is it about the behaviour at the moment that's interrupting your teaching? What are the skills and the, and the, and the behaviours that you could do to try and get the young people back onto engagement and learning? The worst thing we can do when a young person or any teacher comes in and says, ah, oh, really struggling with those year fives or really struggling with those year tens and other teachers go oh I don't have a problem with them they're really easy that just kills a professional conversation yeah all of us no matter how fantastic you are are going to have days where the students are going to misbehave you're not going to be out you're not going to be teaching as best you could um, things happen so therefore you you need collegial support and this is the power the work that we're doing in a couple of schools in Melbourne, the power is that all the staff are involved mm. and the teachers are going, oh, this is the most professionally supportive thing that's ever happened to me because we're all using the routines. We're all demanding the same high expectations of the students. And it doesn't take long 
for the students to realise this and therefore get into better habits of behaviour in the classroom. And then there's that group that do really challenge behaviour. Well, teachers need to talk about those repeat behaviours, those students who really struggle with self-regulation to engage in the classroom. We have to have professional conversations about those. We have to resource them appropriately so that they can turn around the behaviour and start learning because when they finish school, we want them to be good citizens living next door to you, contributing to the community. Mm. And we have to start that from our foundation prep and kindy. Yeah, you've touched on so many big kind of issues that we have there as teachers where firstly, you might have a few teachers who, you know, they're kind of of the, the thinking, I've been a teacher for, for 10 years. I want to just do things my way. I don't want to have to change and, and follow what, what everyone else is doing because what I'm doing is working for me. What sorts of things can we say around, you know, those sorts of challenging conversations? Yeah, I think what we have to do is same as the students, we have to reskill teachers. It's, it's okay. What you're doing at the moment might be working um, for you, but it might not be working for others. We need uniformity uh, in the school. We need to narrow the behaviour curriculum so that all students, this is about saying to young people, you really belong in this school. Hmm. We want to we wanna love you. We want to make sure that you flourish. We want to make sure that you have the best social, uh, personal, academic outcomes by being a part of this school. For that to happen, what we know is that this is how the classroom has to, has to operate. This is what the evidence tells us about a calm and orderly learning environment. Learning won't happen unless we have calm and orderly learning environments. For an environment to be calm and orderly, there are certain things that, that have to be done. We have to behave in a way that's socially appropriate for the whole class. We have to listen to other people. We have to speak when appropriately. We have to engage in the learning. Well, the teacher has to lead that. And I think this is the challenge, Brendan, is that we're confronting some teachers' perceptions of what they want to be as a teacher sometimes, that I want to be the friend. I want to be um, the guide on the side. I want to be in relationship with young people. That's fine. You can be in relationship and relationships are crucial. But first and foremost, you can't develop relationships out of disruption and chaos. Mm. Because before relationships, there are trust. To develop trust, you have to have connections with young people. And this is where biologically primary knowledge is so crucial for teachers because young people are biologically primed to read facial cues, hear tone of the teacher, and then make an assessment of intent. Does this teacher like me? Is this teacher friendly? Or is this teacher a foe? Once we understand that, we then know a golden rule in teaching, nonverbal cues reign supreme. Hmm. So from day one, I want to connect with my young people in my class, whether they be kindy kids through to second, senior secondary year 12s. I need to know that I've got to have eye contact. I know that I've got to speak directly to them. I know I've got to know their name. I know that I've got to set up an orderly class. And that could be a seating plan, things that your teachers might not want to do. But remember, this is about safety of all students learning in this class. And not all young people feel safe in a class. So we have to try and level the playing field, how we enter the room is about safety. It's about efficiency so I can get on and teach. It's not about being punitive. It's not about running a military school. It's just saying, look, all of us, 30, 25, however many we have, have to get through this narrow door. 
We've got to get to desks. Mm-hmm. We've got to settle down and start learning. I've got a really good way that we can do that. And the way we're going to do it is this. And of course, effective teachers have been doing this forever. That when young people are lining up outside, that's when they start connecting. Gee, yeah. it's good to see you back. I heard you were crook. Fantastic. I've got the worksheets for you. It's up online. Um, you've got to, we've got to notice absences. It's very crucial if we're going to develop a sense of belonging in the class because you count, you are worth it, and I missed you the other day, but you're not going to miss out on learning because we've got that covered. It's yeah. also a way if you need to check, have you got your laptop? Don't wait till the classroom and then go, oh, I've got, I haven't got my book, sir, haven't got my laptop, or why am I bringing my lunchbox in? Why am I bringing my sports bag in? You don't need that stuff. Do all that outside and get that done. So when we're in the class, the young people know when we're in this class, this is for learning and this is serious business. And I'm going to teach my socks off to ensure that you're learning in my class. To do that, we're going to have norms of behaviour. The culture is around learning and this is how I expect you to behave. Mm. Well, I think you've already busted one of those uh, common myths around classroom management where you don't smile until July, <laughs> you know, you don't smile until, you know, week 10, when you've already said nonverbal cues reign supreme. And so, you know, if we're not showing them, like you said, showing them that love, uh, building that relationship and, until mid-year, you've probably lost them by then, haven't you? You've lost them by then. And you can't then say, all of a sudden say, hey, I'm back. <laughs> Let's start being friendly. I mean, that's that's a safeguarding issue. That's that's really creepy. So teachers can be their own personality, they be themselves All we need to say is that it's around safety. I want to develop an environment where you can learn. So therefore, we're going to enter in a way. We're going to exit in a way. I'm going to call for your attention in a cue to start, which is a simple minimal verbal cue. You're going to repeat it. That's going to cut away any distraction. I'm not going to do it four or five times. We're going to do it once. It gives me whole class attention to now give the instructions so that we can get on to learn. How you work in groups. What sort of a voice do you use? How do you answer questions? What happens when we walk around the school? What happens when there's an interruption on the PA? What do we do when someone walks into the class, et cetera? All of these things we can teach because we can't assume, Brendan, that young people come to school with the habits or the ability to behave in a way that makes them learn in a classroom. Mm. Because all young people come with different values and beliefs and it's those values and beliefs that are going to clash going to cause us classroom management stress in the classroom with the teacher. So I believe in homework is really important. We're going to do homework. I'm not going to waste your time. If there's no homework to do, I won't give it to you. But when I give it to you, it's for a purpose. And I will always check it. Now, a young person will come to school possibly with values and beliefs from home that home time is home time. It's not up to the teacher to give you homework. If they can't cover in the lesson, that's their fault, blah, blah, blah. And then I have to go in and try and convince this young person, we're talking primary and secondary, that homework's important to them. It's a struggle. But if we believe in it, and this is the expectation we need to set, we say this is how we work in this room. What is normal in this room is you will get homework and I will check it and I will offer feedback because that's part of our formative assessment that we're going to continually do feedback. And I'm going to do exactly the same for your behaviour. I'll give you constant feedback on how you lined up, how you entered, how you answered a question, how you might have called out, how you left early, whatever it might be, so that I can get the best behaviour possible in this class so all of us can learn and I can teach. Mm. 
and you've started already digging into this point, but what do you mean when you say managing student behaviour is about learning? All of it's about learning. The whole right from the early learning centres where we work with three and four-year-olds, it's about how do we get them into learning, a learning disposition. You have to listen to the teacher. So you have to attend. If you're going to attend, therefore, I would say, I know you're listening when you're looking at me. So if we want attending behaviours, what does attending behaviour mean? It means sitting in a chair or at the desk. It means that you're listening to the teacher or other people and not distracting. So if the person is off task, so if I stand up and walk around the room, every time you stand up and walk around the room interrupts your learning. I take it back to learning. Every time you talk to the person next to you during work times interrupting your learning. I need you to get back to the worksheet, the task, whatever it might be that you're going to do. What it does is it takes it away any possibility of a teacher demonising a young person, that they're doing this willfully, they're, they're just out to get me, it's all about revenge. No, they don't have the skill and capacity yet to know that this is actual work time, they don't talk. I'm going to give them constant feedback, get them to demonstrate what a quiet voice is in the class so they can get back to work. So I change the behaviours around learning. Same as my instruction. Every time you interrupt, the impact on that is that I can't teach the rest of the class. That's not acceptable. What I expect is, and we give them solutions, we give them practice, or we have to shift them in the room or we offer them a sanction or a consequence because we need to reinforce the behaviour that is asked. But all classroom management, all behaviour management is around how do I increase the learning time for this student and all the other students in the class? Because that's my job. I'm a learning specialist. Mm. Yeah, really good point there. You've already mentioned a couple of examples of how behaviour can be explicitly taught. Are you able to just unpack the term warm demanders and, and what that can look like? Yeah, warm demanders comes from American research at a First Nations people in America and picked up by a couple of authors you know, in Australia. And what it came from, it comes from a lot of the Latin American Latino literature where in America there was a big push to get people from impoverished backgrounds into college. So trying to get the graduation, graduation rate up. And what they did in the early days, did a whole lot of research. And what the students were saying is, look, we want a teacher that can control us. Mm. But we want to be in a relationship with them. And so what we've got is young people saying, I want you to control the class and have high expectations of me, but treat me as a decent person. And so Klein um, coined the phrase warm demanders. What young people want is a warm demander. Someone who has the potential to be in a relationship with the young people, but demands greatness of every student. You know, it's almost as if we believe in the potential for greatness in every student. Now, Students, some students won't get to greatness. That's okay. But our starting point is, I know you've got this capacity and ability that you can behave and that you can learn, and we're going to work hard to support you on this. So that's where warm demanders comes from. And this is why I think, you know, don't smile till Easter is a silly thing because how do you form relationships if we're not actually in facial connection with our young students? It's just not possible. So out of the connections, we build the trust, and then we build those relationships. And relationships are so crucial. We have those relationships and we're really in a firm grounding to challenge 
some of those disruptive behaviors that some students bring into the classroom for us. Yeah. By the time this um, podcast is released, uh, a lot of teachers will start be starting to think about 2024 and, and what that's, that might look like for them. What sorts of things can they be doing to ensure that they, they get the year um, started off on the front foot? Great question. Plan, 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 plan. Write a behaviour curriculum. You've got a scope and sequence for your, for your content that you teach. Do exactly the same for behaviour. What are you going to do day one? What are the routines that you need in your classroom to enable your class to be calm, orderly, and where learning happens? So we know every, every class has got a door. Every kid has to enter that door. Let's do an entrance routine. What's involved in the entrance routine? I need, to, I need to line them up. I need to get them silent first up so they can hear my instructions. So what's your cue to start? Tick, tick, boom, Marco Polo, something that the school does, waterfalls. Doesn't matter if you're using signals for attention in your instruction, then use one of those or adapt those as your cue to start. You've got to have a single cue that the students understand means I need to stop talking, put things out of my hand, and pay attention to the teacher. What's yours? Work it out. Do the entrance routine. Entrance routine is not only getting in the classroom safely, but what do they do with their laptops? What do they do with their pencil case? What do they do with their bag? And until all that's done and everything is out of their hands and they're standing behind their desk or they're sitting down, then you can do your classroom instruction, whether that's an activity on the, as they come in or whether you're starting off a daily review or whether you're starting off questioning, whatever it might be. But your entrance routine is from outside to settling, ready to instruct. Exactly the same as the exit routine. What do you need to do at the end of the lesson to enable your classroom to be clean? Students have their work and homework written in their diaries or they have it collected that they pack up and they walk out safely. What do you need to do at your school, in your class for your exit routine? Because that's time. You know the bell goes in um, 10 minutes. You've got to work back and say, okay, I need six minutes for my exit routine. Time that into your instruction. That means all the whiteboards back, all the erasers, all the, all the markers back, close books, get rid of laptops, put them in your bags, push your chair in, rubbish off the floor, let's say goodbye to each other, remind them about the work for tomorrow, and then they exit row by row. That takes planning. It can't just happen. You actually have to plan it. So I say, what do I do for day one? Plan it. What are your routines? What's your cue to start? And how are you going to teach it day one? You know, when we work with schools, I provide eight pages of a day one script. I know mm. I've got a bit over the top, but there's so much happening. There's assemblies. There's I've got to get to know the students. Well, I'd ease down on the get to know and do, do the family shield and the tug of wars and other games that can come. But the best thing you need to do is to make the young person feel that they are safe. You're safe in this class and you belong. Not only that, you're going to learn this year. You're going to get mastery of social, emotional and academic content. You're going to have control over your behaviours, which gives you power and responsible and independence. And I'm going to get you to give back to the class. That's going to give you so much. So once we understand that young people want to belong, they want to count, they want to be worth something and that they can trust then they know that they can learn, they know that they can make decisions on their own, and they know that they, they need to give back this altruism, this generosity to the school that have given them so much. You've got a desk, you've got a chair, all these learning resources. 
We're going to provide sport, cultural activities. You've got brilliant teachers, textbooks. So what not? what's not to be happy about and privileged about being in this particular school? And that's a really good thing for them when they leave school, that they have this empathy, this altruism to be community oriented. And we can do that from early learning all the way through to year 12. Mm. And a lot of the things that you're talking about there, you're already starting to build that culture and that sense of belonging as you're doing it. So right right off the bat, you're, you're basically telling the story, the narrative of what it's like to be at this school and, and you know, how they should be, how they can be feeling and what they might experience as they move move through their, their school year. So yeah, I like how you describe that. And it also comes back to your, your previous point around how like we can't assume that they know how to behave. I think like we, we make that mistake um, as adults and, it, and even when you're working with other adults where you just assume things and, and a lot of the times unless you make it really explicit and you, you set up those step-by-step routines and you teach it and you model it, you, you have your norms and those expectations. Yeah, a lot of the times misbehaviour comes down to just a lack of communication or poor communication, doesn't it? Or them not understanding what's the norm of behaviour in the culture in this classroom. So if you yep. want to take an ecosystems approach to behaviour or a systemic approach to behaviour, every time a teacher stands in front of a class, uh, a new class, that's a new ecosystem. So you have to re-establish what are the what are the rules and how to operate in this class because it's brand new. We can't just assume that because they've had a, a, a year three teacher, they'll know how to behave in a year four classroom because it's a new teacher. You might have other new students in there. So you have to go back and reteach. Not only, not only the forgetting curve over the over the summer, but you've mm. got to go back and say, hey, in this class, you count, you're worth it. It's about learning. I'm about teaching. I want to make sure that you learn and I'm going to measure your learning over this whole year and I'm going to report and tell your parent or carers this is the learning you had over the year. For me to do that, this is how we need to operate in this particular class. Yeah. And so you need to re-establish what are those norms of behaviour, those routines that you have in your particular class. This is really important for secondary. When you have options, when they, when they turn around, in topics could be every six seven weeks or every term you have a new class they go to five six different teachers every day gotta make sure that we make it safe for the young people that there is uniform expectations of behavior across the school doesn't matter if it's in woodwork dnt home ec phys ed languages specialist classes or mainstream content makes no difference there's a teacher, young people, we need to learn. We're in a particular environment and context. This is how we're going to learn together. And I know talking to young people last week in the school doesn't make a difference. Do you feel safer? One young man said, yes, and I can learn more um, because of it. Not only that, I asked a really cheeky question. So do you think it helps those teachers that might have previously struggled with getting the class to be quiet? Yeah. And they said, Yes. So we know that we can help those teachers that struggle in getting young people to be quiet so that they can teach. We know that we can help them by unifying some of these practices across the school and then getting good support from leadership. Yeah. Are there any other things that um, you're seeing schools do really effectively when we're, when we're looking at, I guess, the gold standard? Everyone talks about, you know, Michaela Community School under, under Catherine Burblesing and Schools like that, what are they doing 
that's extra special to take it to that next level uh, when we're talking whole school behavior curriculum um, you know what are they doing that's that's maybe that little bit different consistency 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 everyone does it every minute of the day in every class and the expectation is that every teacher will do it yeah that's that's the key and i know that in schools we're working at that are doing this incredibly well that's the key. I mean, we know that anyway through the, through the literature and the research that the what's effective about a whole school approach is that it's whole school and that it's consistent every classroom, every lesson, every day, and every teacher is supported to do that. And I think for leadership to be unrelenting, if this is the culture we want in this particular school, that we want these young people to flourish as a result of being in this school, we want them to achieve really good personal, social, emotional growth and achieve academically so they can do what they think they want to do post-school, we have to be unrelenting and unforgiving in our processes and procedures within the school. And I think that's what strong leadership does. And then they support the staff. You know, one school we're working at, Brennan, in, in, in Victoria, their leadership team does the coaching in the classrooms. Yeah. So I coach, we've helped them to coach around behaviour, but it's their constancy. And you imagine a leadership team running a big secondary school and a big primary school, but they're going into classrooms to coach. They're going and supporting their teachers to raise the standard of expectations for student behaviour. Teachers feel incredibly supported. And the leadership will go to bat for that teacher with young, with young people. But there's an accountability that we've set our course for this. We're all going to do this together. And... As I said, one of the teachers said to me, this is the most professionally rewarding um, thing they've ever done is everyone is following up on student behaviour. That same teacher said, when I interviewed them in week six, term one, said that they are actually teaching at year six and seven, whereas last year they would have been at week three. They've now got more teaching time. And we want to mm -hmm. say to teachers, we can give you that extra time for instruction. All we need to do is tweak a little bit. They're already doing really good things. Yeah. This is not a deficit model. This is just saying, how do we get uniformity across, across the school? And I think what I'm learning in the coaching is it's not the routines. Every teacher can follow a routine, which is a sequence. Mm. Every routine is a recipe. They all follow it. But the difference between those that do it expertly and those that don't do it as well are around these teacher skills. Mm. And the teacher skills uh, proximity. Where do I stand? How many times have we had teachers standing so they can't see the whole line when they're lining up outside to enter the class? All you've got to say is take it, take two steps to the right and a couple to the left, and you can see the whole class. Perfect. Once you give your cue to start, you need to pause. And the pause is so powerful. I saw a pause last week that brought this class into deafening silence and the teacher just paused now the inexperienced teacher or the teacher doesn't do well doesn't pause mm. they'll say righto and then go straight on to instructions no no yeah pause then you have to scan like you do in a daily review you've got to scan all the whiteboards you've got to do exactly the same pause scan the class then when i get a hundred percent attention thank the students politeness is so crucial we want a civil society. That's why we greet. That's why we want politeness. So we say our cue to start. We pause. 
we scan, we thank the students. Now they are ready to listen to the next instruction. I haven't got people playing in their bags. I haven't got people talking, people moving around. So we maximise their attention so we can move on to what we're doing. And the other one is gestures. I don't have to break up my lesson. I can use simple gestures with a finger on a, on a lip. I can tell point to someone to get back to their work. Someone stop talking because the flow of the lesson is so crucial. Pace is so crucial. I want learning to happen. Don't interrupt it. Act. Don't talk. That's why proximity in the classroom is so good. Go and stand next to that student that you know struggles with behaviour uh, and to work quietly. Just give them a bit of that physical presence. Walk around the rooms. This is Archer's circulation work around it. The pause, the scan, the look. The teachers have to perfect the look. You know, the look from the front of the room where it sort of says, I know that you know that I know you know you shouldn't be talking. Get back to work. You know, and we've got relatives that could stop a train with a look. That's what we need in the class as well. Again, non-verbal corrections to enable learning to happen, to do that. And this is why I'm really excited about the work at Aero. Aero have developed these practical classroom management resources, skills that teachers can use, responding to behaviour, but setting up calm and orderly classrooms in a suite of resources that are a couple of pages. Hmm. I think they are going to be the hottest ticket in town. When they're launched and released later in the year in December, I would say, I've been saying to the schools that I'm working at across Australia, download those because there you've got an amazing resource for mm. your teachers on simple skills that will make your life so much easier in the classroom. And students will thank you because they'll be learning. Yeah, sounds really exciting to, to kind of build on the work that you've, you've also done as well this year. Yeah, really looking forward to that. Now, I just want to you know, talk about a couple of things that you, you, you spoke about there. So you're talking about the proximity, the pause, the scan. And I think like one of the, the things that you see with teachers who are kind of working on developing their own expertise in behaviour management, you'll see them, they'll do this stuff, but and you'll see their, their kind of mind ticking over, yeah, all right, I've got, to, I've got to put a signal, I've got to pause, I've got to you know, do all these different things but they don't actually pay attention to being responsive to what's actually happening in front of them. So like that key one there you said around the pausing where the teachers, they'll feel like they're pausing, but they literally pause for like one second and, and the students haven't actually stopped what they're doing. And then the teacher just continues doing, yeah, going on with their, their lesson instruction and you've, you've hardly got anyone actually paying any attention. And so, yeah, I think that the attention to detail and actually under, the teacher needing to understand like, the purpose of this technique and what they need to be looking for. You know? And so like I added on, don't just pause and scan, but wait for 100% attention before you then move on to that next part. 100% attention is the whole purpose. But what's interesting, Brendan, when I ask teachers, what do you fear if you were to pause longer? Yeah. So many come back and say, I think I will lose the kids. I think the students will misbehave. And I say to them, Let's do it again in practice and you watch how you can get control of your class really simply. Mm. So we go back and do it again. The longer the pause with a purposeful scan, so I'm looking at all, what it does when you've got that scanning and that pausing is that if there is a student that is talking, I can then use the name. Tim, eyes to me, please. Tim then focuses attention. I don't have to go in a big battle with Tim. I just have to rule remind and then I can keep scanning. Once I get 100% attention, thank them, 
and then I can give them the instruction um, for the lesson around it. And it's these simple skills, you know, when the really effective classroom management teachers demonstrate this, it is just so beautiful to watch because it's seamless, but it's not seamless because they work so hard at it. Mm. It's not personality driven. They yeah. know what works for them in their class. And what we've got to say to other teachers is there are certain things that we can teach you, but you've got to practice these skills. You have to practice the skills. And of course, with those skills comes acknowledgement. That was really good, Tim. Thank you. Just simple acknowledgements that can happen all during the lesson. Because young people know they want to count they're worth something with you because the teacher's important in their lives, whether they believe it or not. The other one is praise. And, you know, giving some emotive praise to a young person about I really appreciated the way that you worked in that group today. I thought your questions were really well thought out. Thank you. Mm. That's worth more than rewards, funny money, I don't know, time off, whatever, whatever they people might use in their classroom. That's going to give you more relationship development and more, well, hopefully better behavior can going forward because you've said what you liked about their effort and what they did. Yeah. You didn't just say, oh, that was really good. You scaffolded what it was that you appreciated. That's the formative feedback all the time. Yeah. I've, I've previously spoken to Dr. Russ Fox before about this stuff, and he talks about making every transaction and interaction. You know, so it's not just a matter of handing out that reward or the, the token or whatever it is, but actually making sure you've communicated the reasons behind that so that they the students, because again, it comes back to sometimes the students not really getting the fact that they have done something right <laughs> because they're not hearing a lot of that praise, whether it's at home or, or from other teachers at the school. So yeah, it's, it's it can be quite powerful that. It's very powerful, really powerful. Um, to give that praise. Remember, Yuri Bronfenbrenner was the one that said, you know, all young people need at least one adult who's irrationally crazy about them. Mm. And it could be that you are the teacher that this person believes you're irrationally crazy about them. <laughs> Why? Because you call them by their name. Yeah. You smile at them. You give them feedback. You say that behaviour is not appropriate. I know we can act better than that. Here's the behaviour I expect in the class because this is not about free free reign there are expectations of behavior in the class and you need to uphold it i'll support you because i think you're worth it mm. i'll support you because i want you to flourish in my class and achieve your best outcomes mm. yeah high expectations with high levels of support the next kind of section of our conversation i reckon it's, it probably fits into a bit of a controversy corner <laughs> there's a few things here which yeah some some teachers might have some questions about and and we might not be on the same page with i guess how we we feel these sorts of rules or, or expectations should be upheld at school so first one i just want to talk about is like should we differentiate our behavior expectations or take a one-size-fits-all approach you know so when we're talking about those students with additional needs or, or maybe they've experienced some trauma should we differentiate our expectations or should they have to live up to the same standards as everyone else we have expectations that all students are expected to follow. And the, what we're talking about around explicit teaching of behaviour and a behaviour curriculum is like a universal um, intervention. This is your 80% of the class can actually behave uh, and follow instructions. There's going to be some students that do have additional needs. There are going to be some students that whose adverse childhood experiences 
make it more difficult for them to behave in a way that, it, that helps them to learn as fast as others. But it doesn't mean we have different expectations. I still have an expectation that I can help you self-regulate. I can help you with your behaviour when you start. These are very, very extreme cases in the class, which are very few. You have to realise this. What are, what are young people, the interventions with young people with trauma? The number one thing that a young person with trauma seeks in a school is safety. Mm. So when we're working with young people who have experienced trauma, we know if we look at Howard Bath's three pillars of trauma-informed practice, the first one is safety. So I'm going to provide a safe learning environment for all my students. Well, who's going to benefit? Who's going to be hypervigilant to this? Their amygdala, the side of their head, is going to be on high alert. This classroom's safe. Mm. And it's safe because it's teacher-led. There is someone in charge. There is someone leading the safety of this. And not only that, I experience that safety in the way we enter, we exit, we ask questions, we work in, work in the classroom. So that's incredibly important. The other one for young people who experience trauma from Howard Bath's three pillars is that they need connections, safety and connections. Well, we're going to provide those connections because isn't that what the teacher's going to do? Nonverbal cues, we're going to provide lots and lots of connections. I'm going to make sure that I have so many connections with these young people. And not only that, my teaching practices are going to connect them to the content. I'm going to connect them to being successful in learning. Now, a lot of these young people haven't had that success. Mm. You know, learning is an adult responsibility. Students just can't get it through osmosis. We can't get it by lighting a fire under their imagination and all of a sudden they'll spontaneously combust into this wonderful, knowledgeable beast. It's impossible. Learning is an adult responsibility. I'm going to make sure that those young people in my class trauma-informed, neurodiverse, ASD, other young people, they're all going to learn. Well, that, that in a sense could be therapeutic for a lot of young people to realise that they've got talent and that I can achieve success. And then the third part to working with trauma young people is we do need to offer some self-regulation skills. We do need to offer some replacement behaviours, if you like, or more pro-social behaviours for them. And we can do that. The small minority of young people in schools and there are specialists in the school that can help that. I need a plan as a teacher. I need to know that we have in place, this young person is getting agitated. This young person's had a really bad morning at home. They've come in at an agitated state. Most of us on one to 10 are about three or four. We know working with young people in, in juvenile detention centres that they have a resting agitation of about seven. Doesn't take much for them to go to explosion. So if this young person is, and I know that through the notes in the school, then they've got a card system. They put a card up, they know they can leave, or we have a gesture, or we have a signal, whatever it might be. They can then go to the place that's designated in the school where they're looked after, they're safe. And you say to them, that was amazing self-regulation. You knew you were getting agitated and you looked after yourself. So proud, that's brilliant. Let's continue that, et cetera. So yes, it should be universal. These expectations are so that these young people, when they finish school, are going to be operating at a way or in the community that makes them flourish and successful. Some students are going to need some extra help. You know, I know that working in a behaviour unit, we have a range of young people with really complex backgrounds, etc. It is possible to provide a almost therapeutic environment that is around learning, where they get a sense of belonging, they understand they have talent, 
and that they have control in their lives. I know that. I did my doctorate on those students in the behaviour unit. What did they say they wanted out of this behaviour unit? They wanted, they wanted to belong. They wanted to have a voice. This is really important. They want to have a voice that was authentically listened to. Wow, come into my class and I'll listen to you where they belong. They, what they liked about the unit that we worked at was that they learned and that the staff, they couldn't believe this, staff celebrated their learning success. Incredible. And they, then they wanted their voice that was authentic. That's about them having power to do that. And then what they also, also enjoyed was the fact that the staff seemed to get along with each other in this community, but they had peaceful resolution to conflict and that was really important to these young people because they didn't experience that previously. So we know that young people, irrespective of background, mm. they want to belong, know that they can trust adults. We can provide that in the learning environment. All young people want to know that they've got talent. All young people know that they've got some control over their lives and power. All young people need to know that their life has a purpose and they get that out of the community, the classroom community, I like you working in here. They get it out of the school community. I really like the way you contribute to the school. They then get feedback. I'm worth something. My life has a purpose. Amazing for these young people. For the price of a cup of coffee each month, you can support the Knowledge for Teachers podcast and help me provide more in-depth case studies and ensure its sustainability. I would be truly grateful if you went to patron.com slash knowledge for teachers podcast. Patrons will also get access to exclusive episodes, my key takeaways from each episode, and more. For large organisations that are interested in sponsoring the Knowledge for Teachers podcast, send me an email at brendan at learnwithlee.net. Tim, the second one in our controversy corner is uh, looking at phones in schools. What's your take on it? If we're talking about safety and we're talking about learning, what place do phones have in that if they have no place, then they're, not, they're not, not in the class. If they're getting distracted or if we've got online bullying, have a look at all the stuff coming out of the e-commissioner, have a look at some of the tragedies we've had around Australia with young people taking their lives, etc. Do you need that distraction in the classroom? No. Do you need a phone in the class? No, or get one that's not, not internet enabled if you need something for safety. That's okay too. But even though I was at a school recently that was a boarding school and they talked about this, and you said, hang on a minute, you're, you're actually the parent of that young person when they're in your care. How do you know that they're safe at nighttime in their room? And if you can't, then you need to tell the parents that we actually, from 10 till 6 in the morning, I can't guarantee the safety of your, um, your child. Mm. Be up front. Or if you are, what are you going to do to ensure that that young person is safe? Same in the classroom. Some teachers are brilliant on, on digital devices to use it. And if they can use it in that class for a particular time and they can do it, they can guarantee the safety, then I would say use it. But it's not all teachers don't have that skill and their capacity. It becomes a distraction. It becomes a source of tension. I mean, I've been in classrooms where all of a sudden phones are going and someone stands up and yells at another kid because they sent them something. Mm. They're not learning. That's not calm and orderly. So I just think we have to bite the bullet and just say, look, yes, it's a, it's a tough truth, but there's no phones. Yeah, yeah. This is another one that's, that's probably been in the media a bit over the last couple of years is around exclusions in schools. So is there a place for excluding students from the classroom for misbehaviour? Definitely. I worked in an exclusion unit 
um, as executive director of an education system, all exclusions sat with me. Sometimes we need to find the most appropriate education provision for young people, and it might not be in that school. And so we know that no one, unless, unless, unless a young person goes to um, a more suited and tailored education provision that justifies the exclusion in the sense of, at the moment, the behaviour is that abhorrent, if you like, or it's not working, you're not, you're not learning, you're interrupting others, or the safety of others is crucial, safety of teachers is crucial. There are some students that would flourish better in a different, different education environment, and that's why we have a whole range of schools and parental choice. It's why we have the public, the private, independent, Catholic, and the special assistance schools, so that parents can have a choice of the school that is best going to suit the behavioural needs or the learning of their young person. Exclusions, Brendan, are brutal. Are brutal. Brutal on the brutal on the principal. It's a loss. Brutal on the family. Brutal on the young person facing that rejection. How it's done is crucial. We wanted you to flourish in this environment and it wasn't happening. We believe this next step is the best step for you and here is the school and here is the transition. We're going to stick with you for a while. We're going to make that transition as smooth as possible because you count, you're worth it, and we need you to learn because it's a life skill. It's going to unlock so many things for you. Sorry it couldn't work out in this particular school, but my staff safety is crucial. The safety of the other students are crucial, and we need to act on this. Mm. And so what about, I guess, lower-level um forms of, of misbehaviour where you've got students that, that maybe they've been mucking up for their teacher and they've, they've given been given a number of warnings. Is there a place for the, the teacher then to send that child out of the classroom? Definitely. Every school should have a disciplinary hierarchy. There's low-level behaviours of talking, moving around. Then we go up, up the ladder whereby it's a repeat talking. Then we might have to offer a consequence. Consequence could be shifting desks. Uh, consequence could be a loss of time at recess or lunch or after school. And then if the student then refuses, we then go up the disciplinary hierarchy. That now is refusing a teacher instruction. Well, there's a different sanction for that because it's more serious and that's not the behaviour we want in this particular school. So therefore there could be a loss of time, there could be a detention, there's parental contact, but the school has all this stepped out because teachers need to be supported in the class. Mm. And so... All the low-level behaviours should have a response. If a student escalates the behaviour, then we need to skill teachers in the language of discipline. Offering consequences or choice is also a sequence. And, and I would teach it to the students. If we get to a point where you're refusing my instruction, this is what we're going to do, and here's the sequence. I'm going to tell you the, what you're doing. I'm going to tell you the impact of your behaviour. I'm going to give you what I want you to do, and then I'm going to expect you to do it. Mm. And then we'll... Let's role play it with the students. This is what's going to happen. So we demystify yeah. all of this disciplinary hierarchy with the young people in the class. And yes, I might have to remove you from the class. If you're having trouble controlling behaviour at the moment or it's interrupting me or it's a repeated behaviour, then I need to move you, remove you from the class. You need to go to whatever it is in the school that's set up, to the <clears throat> head, of, head of year, AP and primary deputy, whatever it is, all that's clear for the teacher. Teachers need to know that so they don't stress 
What do I do now? And it makes it clinical. And then the young person also needs to know that there's consequence to their actions. And this is the consequence that you're going to get. The trick with all of this, though, Brennan, is exactly the same as what you're talking about, Michaela, talking about a whole school, is consistency. Consistency. Yeah. You know, if you've got a loss of time or a sanction that takes them out, then use it. Don't go, oh, it's okay. Don't worry to one student and not to another. You know, and if you have to shift a student, if you've got to give them some sanction, et cetera, around it, make sure you follow through. You've got it, you state it, then do it. So then the students know that this behaviour is really real in this class and I can't get away with it, whereas they'll tell you the, they'll tell you the teacher that they can get away with it. They'll tell you the teacher that, I oh, don't worry about it in Tim's class. You can do what you like. That erodes the culture in the school and yep. we really have to try and get rid of that. Yeah. So what about the, because there's, there's kind of two trains of thought around the, the restorative kind of part that comes after either the detention or, you know, after someone's been sent out. Should that be handled by school executives, school leaders, or is that better off handled with that actual classroom teacher? This is really perplexing in the work at the moment in, in, in Australian schools that I'm involved in. No one's doing it well. When you get time just for teachers, and you say, do you do your restorative chat? Most schools have different titles for it. When they're honest, they'll say no. And, of course, we know that. Who's got time mm. for that? And not only that, we're almost saying to a, a teacher who's a novice in restorative conversations, I want you to be the expert and have a conversation with a young person. So we often don't skill the teachers. We don't template the conversation. And also we rush into it. Sometimes, this is a Kerwin and Mendler, when they wrote Discipline and Dignity with Challenging Youth, talked about a 24-hour rule. Sometimes we're not going to have conversations with young people to get back in the class till the next day because I'm so frustrated. How, if I'm frustrated and head up, how am I meant to have a calm, restorative conversation? Mm. I'm doing it just because I'm being told to do it and I have to go through And also I think we go to these conversations far too early. You know, these are if we're going to shift behaviour, Restorative conversations aren't the best. But if you want to have a conversation with a young person about their behaviour, what they did, what you experienced and what you expect for them to do, that can be really matter of fact. Don't call it restorative. This is the behaviour I expect in my class. This is how we need to do it again. Let's practice it next time we're in the class and make it a beeline for that young person to say, I need you to demonstrate that behaviour we spoke about in our conversation. Conversation might be three minutes might be five minutes. I think we have to get away from jumping into this restorative conversation with young people. A, golden rule of teachers, you can't fix students. It's not our job. Our job is for them to learn. And they have to learn the behaviours that we need to teach them. If they're repeat behaviours from a young person and there's a clear need for intervention because they can't operate in that class, then there are specialist people to help with that. Yes, bring the teacher along to it. Yes, bring the families along. But I think we go too much into this restorative stuff. And there's limited research that these interactions shift behaviour because you've got to replace a behaviour or you've got to strengthen some neural pathways of a behaviour for that young person. You can't just tell them, I want you to behave better. Well, that's nonsense. Show them, demonstrate, you practice, I'll give feedback then we've got a chance for that young person to shift the behaviour. 
Let's line up again. Do not push and shove people in the line. Can you show me again, Tim? Thank you. That was really good. I appreciate the way you did that. Made it safe for everyone. And I think you'll get greater acceptance. Let's move into class. You know, so we can do it in the moment when they come back into the class. We probably don't need long-winded restorative conversations that have limited return on investment. Mm. Like what you said there about how, you know, often we, we go in too early in these conversations as well and and how you took into account the actual teacher and their mental headspace because, yeah, like you said, it's, it, it's pretty common for the teacher to still be quite, quite wound up over what's actually happened and they're not actually displaying the sort of behaviour that you'd like to see in these conversations as well. So, yeah, go on. Well, Brendan, you're putting two emotionally charged people together to come up with a resolution. Now, we know in parenting our own children or working with young people, no one in the history of civilization has ever calmed down because an adult has said, calm down. <laughs> so I don't know why we want to go into these conversations knowing what we know about the brain, knowing what we know about emotion in the brain and how that drives behaviour and expect two emotive people to come together for a logical conclusion. All it ends up is the teacher will always win because they've got more positional power. Mm. That's not solving anything for that young person or the teacher. Yeah. Look, you've spoken a little bit about, you know, rewards and, and reprimands, but do you want to add anything else to, you know, how teachers can effectively use rewards and reinforces and reprimands? It's a conversation that teachers ask often. If you're using a reward system and it's working, use it. I think it's, it's no point in my work in classrooms with teachers or working with whole schools and leadership to dismantle a reward system, except to say, is the dignity of the young person upheld all the time? We're not shaming people by publicly putting, you know, that they're in the they're in the dark cloud or they're in the or in the in the white cloud because they've been good or bad or you know things that really aren't effective that we know for young people around it. If it works, it works. But test yourself. Is that the only way that you affirm behaviour? If it is, it's not going to work full time. You've got to have verbal verbal recognition. You've got to have verbal praise. You've got to have constant feedback. Start from there and then look at where do rewards fit into how we're supporting young people. And once we start this work, we often do find that those rewards, which sometimes are historic, it's been in the school for years, we've always done it, and no one's ever said, you know, do house points work? Do special points work? You know, is it really helping us? And if you ask the students, they'll go, nah, it's not helping. But we just haven't had time to readdress it. But if we look at, we want our classrooms to be um, calm, orderly and predictable. We want to make sure that our students are behaving. These are the behaviours that the teachers have. Here's our discipline hierarchy in the school and our responses. Where does rewards fit in? And then if we do want to reward behaviour, like certificates at assemblies or whatever they are, they're fine. It's public recognition for the effort that they did. Kids know that every kid in the class is going to get one of those at some stage during the year, so they're probably not that special for them. So you need to explain it as to why we're using it and how we're going to do it, et cetera. But remember, young people want to know that they count and they can trust you 
And the best way to do that is to give them that praise for their effort and the work that they've done. That carries more relational um, wealth than any rewards or trinkets. Yeah, yeah. Great tip. So this next question, it's kind of looking at one of the the difficulties that a lot of schools and, and teachers experience when they're communicating with families. So whether, you know, that's parents and, and you're making phone calls home or, you know, or even if you're just explaining the, the school's behavior expectations, what sorts of things can we do when the families don't align with the school's vision of, you know, behavior expectations or, or even just around like the consequences that have been dealt out for their, their children? Conversation, 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 communicate, communicate, communicate. This is what we do. Here's our behavior curriculum. Here's our expectations. First and foremost, make everything explicit. What are you trying to achieve? When your son or daughter leaves this school, what are we hoping to achieve with them? While they're here, we're going to ensure that they flourish. We're going to make sure that we love them. We're going to provide a learning environment where they're all successful in their own right and they can, and they can achieve and thrive. Most parents want that. To do that, we need to organise the school in a particular way and this is how we're going to do it. And we know... All students are going to misbehave at some stage. Therefore, there's going to be some consequences or sanctions that come. These are the consequences and sanctions that we do at this school. Happy to have that continuous dialogue with you, but this is what we're hoping to do with your child once they enter this school. And when they leave, we hope that they'll be better off because this is our aim to do it. Yes, there's going to be conflict. Of course, there's going to be conflict with beliefs and values of parents. There's going to be conflict with parents that don't believe in after-school sanctions, loss of time, loss of privilege, taking phones away, whatever it might be, whether it's uniform, hair, who knows, whatever it is in different schools. Mm. But we just have to be really explicit up front. This is what we're trying to achieve. We want all people to be loved and to flourish in this school. To do that, we have these expectations. And I think we win parents over when the young person comes home and says, I think I'm learning. Yeah. I feel safe and belong. And we've got to make sure, this is the other part, Brandon, about in the classroom. If our classroom is based on values, whether it be respect, it's a common one in talking with schools and teachers. You've got to ask the students, when, when did you feel respected in this class this week? How did that interaction enable you to experience respect? And of course, the other side is when you speak to me like that, I feel disrespected. When you speak to other students like that, I don't think you're showing respect. It's when those values come alive that then the students can start talking about what the school is doing with them to help them to be respectful. And, of mm. course, all our rules, then a rule will reflect the respect that only one person speaks at a time, you know, that we keep our hands, keep our hands to ourselves, et cetera. So the rules reflect the values which reflect how we behave in the classroom because we enter the class respectfully we line up, we walk in, we take turns, etc. So values come alive. And I think we have to make those very clear for the parents as well. What is it about the values of the school at the moment that you don't want us to do with your young person? How do you experience respect for that? And for some, you know, we've got a fair bit of work to do because parents also have educational pasts that might not have been as, as positive. And so mm-hmm. they'll come with their own, you know, trauma, if you like, around it. And so we just have to be gentle and work with them. But first and foremost, as a school, who are we? What do we stand for? What are the behaviours? What are we trying to achieve? That's the behaviour curriculum. And we publish it and everyone sees it. 
Mm. And, and I think, you know, what you're getting at there is probably the key step that a lot of schools fail to actually implement where they're not communicating what their, their school expectations are to the community. And so the first time that these parents actually hear anything about it is when they're getting caught up saying, you know, your, your son or your daughter has been playing up in class and yeah, and straight away they're going to get on the defensive because you know, there's that misalignment in, in what should be happening for their child. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. You should never, I mean, a parent should never find out that their son or daughter suspended without, without a whole lot of communication that goes up to it. If someone's removed from a class, there's got to be some communication leading up to it, et cetera. So absolutely. Parents have got to know no different that we can't wait till end of semester or term two or reporting term for the parent or the carer to realize that their son or daughter um, can't read or that they're failing in the subject. You know, that's, that's, that's 10 to 20 weeks of intervention that the school have lost on that young person mm. or no different in behaviour. So from day one, we want to intervene and support these young people so that they can behave appropriately to enable learning to happen. For that to happen, we need to communicate with parents exactly as we do around um, their understanding of core content and curriculum. So, look, as we begin to wrap up our conversation today, it's, it's been really great just talking to you about the importance of, of front-loading what those expectations are, the need for consistency across the school in everything that you do, and then communicating what those expectations are constantly to the whole community so that we're all on the same page with our understanding of, of what should be happening to support the learning within our school. So, Tim, you know, this is called the, the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. Do you have any other bits of knowledge or resources that you'd recommend teachers engage with? It can be to do with behaviour or it, it can be to do with anything in, in education. Well, I think there's some fantastic resources out there. I'll go back to the Aero resources. There's a clear one coming out into this year um, because I just think they're really practical. Um, they're practical, um, easy to pick up, and they're in the classroom. Uh, you know, I think Tom Bennett's Running the Room is a, is a, a fabulous book um, to, to explore this whole behaviour curriculum. Um, out there, I think the Wongs have got a really good book out out of America about the, called the first days. I think it's a really good read about effective teachers and what do they do? Plan, 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 plan on behaviour, and they do it from day one. High expectations. I just think they're really good messages to have. You know, Lemop's got all that stuff as well. What do you want to achieve in the school? What do you need to do to change the environment to enable young people to learn and plan for it and plan for it and plan for it. And I think you'll be amazed at the results. I mean, work we've done around schools and the other, the other part, obviously, this all, all relates to the science of learning. We've got to understand cognitive load, um, which you've had before, is that this is about automaticity. This is about habit forming of behaviour. Um, for that to happen, we, under, we need to understand the working memory. We want to make it automatic so it gets into long-term memory. That's why we use a cue, a simple response. This is why the habits form really quickly because they're in the context is known, a classroom is known, and it's done constantly. So this is Dewey's work. It just helps the habit formation, and it happens really quickly in a school. And I know that working with a whole school, one day's PD, come back four weeks later, do the coaching. All of the teachers have talked about the culture in the school is so much calmer, that there's so much order, because they've instituted these routines and expectations and then it's a joy for me to go back in and the team to go back in and coach 
in the classroom to see the shift so quickly. Young people want to be safe. They want to learn and they want the teacher to lead the class so they know they're safe. doesn't matter whether you are ASD, neurodiverse, trauma. We've worked with lived, people with lived experience. We've asked parents, asked young people. They relish this environment because it's safe, calm, predictable, and the teachers are teaching more and kids are going to learn more. Awesome. Thank you, Tim. It's been uh, wonderful chatting today and, and I'm sure a lot of schools and you know school leaders and teachers are going to get a lot out of this and hopefully they, they do put in that time to planning for those behaviours that we want to see in the classroom and, and communicating that constantly and reinforcing it through the, uh, the upholding of those expectations. So, yeah, thank you again and, and I think your, your work's going to have um, a really positive impact on a lot of uh, classrooms around Australia. So thank you. Thanks, Brendan. Appreciate it. As I mentioned in our chat, I feel that behaviour management is one of those taboo subjects, despite the fact it's often the number one barrier to learning. I thought Tim was able to really unpack lots of practical strategies for school leaders and teachers, and here are my key takeaways. The current nature of behaviour in Australian education consists of low-level, high-frequency, persistent inattentiveness and off-task behaviour, and it's distracting for both teachers and students. There's also a constant 20% of young people labelled as the easy riders who stay in this group and were a year and a half behind their peers in standardised testing. We need a cultural revolution to help teachers understand that it's okay to struggle with the behaviour and reach out for help. One of the challenges in getting uniformity in enacting a behaviour curriculum across the school is confronting some teachers' perceptions of what they want to be as a teacher. Nonverbal cues reign supreme. Our young people need to know, when we're in class, it is for learning and it is serious business. Warm demanders are people who believe in the potential for greatness in every student. Tim emphasised the need to plan and create a scope and sequence for behaviour and to think about every behaviour that students perform on a daily basis and then teach them how to do it. He also spoke about the power of scripting how you will teach these behaviours. Every time a teacher stands in front of a class, a new class, that's a new ecosystem. Tim also highlighted the difference between the really great schools is their level of consistency and that everyone does it every minute of the day in every class. The expert teachers have mastered things like proximity, the pause, gestures, pace and the look. We need to sincerely acknowledge and praise our students when they get it right. I loved his quote of Yuri Broffenbrenner around how all young people need at least one adult who's irrationally crazy about them. The number one thing that a young person with trauma seeks in a school is safety. Tim also spoke about, we need to ensure that students feel a sense of belonging and that they have a voice that is authentically listened to. We need to communicate what the rules and expectations are and then follow them consistently. Sometimes we need to be really matter-of-fact when dealing with mis misbehaviour and state that this is the behaviour I ex expect in my class. This is how we need to do it, and let's practice it. We need to be careful with how we use rewards and reprimands. Verbal recognition carries more relational wealth than any rewards or trinkets. Make it really explicit to the community what your school is trying to achieve. If you found this conversation interesting, I highly recommend that you give his report a read, as well as as well as Tom Bennett's one that was also released through the Centre for Independent Studies. 
Next episode, you will hear from teacher and researcher Corey Peltier. We discuss some of the myths that undermine math teaching, the instructional hierarchy, curriculum-based measurements, building fluency, and much more. However, that's it from me for today. And as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.